Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. This is the commute of our discontent. It's not the winter of our discontent. If you live on the east side of this city, you are absolutely steaming mad. And let me tell you, you're late today, for sure. Hondo P, you are late. And you know why? It's because of a major closure in the eastern part of the city. And it's one of those intersections that when you close that one, then it just, just everything around it just goes right to hell in a handbasket. And coming up, we are going to talk about the impact on local businesses about this closure. And we're going to talk to the local counselor about how it is that we mitigate this kind of thing. Obviously, we need to upgrade stuff. We need to build things. But there has got to be a better way, is there not? We'll talk to Brad Bradford about that coming up, plus Morgan Campbell, our Global News reporter, who's live on the scene at that closure that is, of course, at Queen and Kingston this morning. But I want to begin with the Ontario government spending nearly a year in talks with a developer about a pitch to build housing in the Greenbelt. This, of course, is in opposition to the promise from the Premier not to touch the protected area. CBC News reporting this today. The discussions involving a 60-hectare property in northeastern corner of Vaughan. The land is owned by a family whose members have donated more than $100,000 to the progressive conservatives in recent years, including to Ford's 2018 leadership bid. Now, the minister in charge of all of this says this case is closed, not a big deal, nothing to see here, move on. But I want to go up a couple of thousand feet, get into that imaginary global news chopper and just go up here and try and see the situation from a higher level. Why is it that the Ford government is subject to such greenbelt panic all the time? Is it justified? Well, remember that during the election campaign in 2018, the Ontario Liberals released this video of Ford telling developers that portions of the Greenbelt would be opened up for development. Here's what Ford said in that video. We will open up the Greenbelt, not not all of it. We're going to open a big chunk of it up, and we're going to start building. A big chunk. A big chunk, says Ford in that video. That was him speaking to uh, donors and supporters and developers in advance of the election. That was actually during his leadership campaign. Then when that comes out, well, that makes news on the election campaign. And I'm just giving you the context here because I think you need to have it to understand what's going on when we talk Greenbelt and Doug Ford. So then after that video comes out, Ford holds a news conference and says this. I give you my commitment, anything we look at at the green belt, again, I'm repeating it four times, I give you my commitment, it will be replaced. So if you say it four times, obviously, it's real, right? I mean, I said it four times. But then once in power, the conservatives bring in Bill 66. Now that largely was seen as a tool to be used to dismantle environmental protections that protect development in the Greenbelt. And with opposition mounting for municipalities, in January of this year, Ontario announced it will not move forward with the controversial element of the proposed legislation that would have opened up the Greenbelt. Steve Clark, here he is quoted, saying that the planning tool that would have allowed 
municipalities under some circumstances to override certain laws is out. Done. We're not doing that. I mean, the Premier said it four times, right? Well, sure, it was in the legislation. And now, here we are back to square one. And I give you that for the context to watch the reaction to this story develop over the day. And that pun, ladies and gentlemen, is intended. Let's take you to East Toronto. As promised, Morgan Campbell, our global news reporter, will join us shortly to talk about what's happening in the East and this major development, this major closure that has had a huge impact. Here's Brad Bradford. Now, he is the counselor for Ward 19, Beaches East York, and here he is talking about, I think, the thing that drives commuters and Torontonians more insane than anything else, which is when we do these things piecemeal. Here's the counselor saying, we're not doing that this time. So we're actually doing three things. Uh, you know, we're replacing the tracks, which are at end of life. That's necessary. We're upgrading the platform so it's safer and compliant with AODA and fits with the new streetcars. And we're coordinating the hydro work with Toronto Hydro that needs to take place. So we're trying to do all those things at the same time, minimize the disruption, and get this done as quickly as possible. That's why we have crews working 24-7 uh, for the next few weeks. Okay, so 24-7, we're doing it all at the same time. And obviously, I think we're all hopeful that this thing will go off without a hitch, but we have experiences in the past. Like, for example, not far from there, when they installed the new TTC uh, streetcar barn down there at Leslie and Lakeshore, they put in all those tracks, they ripped the thing up, they put in all the tracks, super new, high-tech, the whole thing. Oh, wait, we we put the tracks in too low. Sorry. we got to rip it up all over again do it again. So that's the experience that Torontonians have. Let's go to Morgan Campbell, who's live. Are you standing street corner right there at Kingston and Woodbine, or uh, sorry, Kingston and Queen Street, Morgan? I am. You can probably hear <laughs> everything. Uh, there are crews here who are working right now. Apparently, they're going to be working 24 7. Um, but uh, that counselor did warn there won't be any jackhammering in the middle of the night, which I'm sure local residents are quite happy about. But the traffic woes, not so happy. Now, right at that corner, and I know this area pretty well. This is my neighborhood, so I, I know it. I came into work today, and it was absolute chaos on all the streets in and around. But spare a thought for those that actually own businesses in the area, and specifically, tell me about this country-style restaurant that you're standing close to. So I spoke with uh, the owner's daughter there. Um, This is how important this story is to them, Alan. The owner actually called his daughter because he was laid up with a back injury to go in and do an interview with me because they are just devastated. They're devastated that there literally is going to be no access to their parking lot. Now, in this area, parking is tough, right? So people roll in, they grab their coffee, and they roll out. Um, that is the majority of their morning traffic, if not throughout the day, really. And there literally is no way to access this parking lot. Now, they're not the only people in here. There's also a couple smoke shops. Uh, there's a convenience store. There's a massage parlor mm-hmm. that legit just opened, I think they said three weeks ago. There's a laundromat that just opened its doors, brand new renovated space, a beautiful space, opened their doors in July. So you can imagine, they've opened businesses in this plaza, 
that literally nobody can get to. You can't and actually won't get there. Can't even months. get there for months. Exactly. That's right. You can't even access it at all. We're speaking with Morgan Campbell, global news reporter, who earlier today spoke with Samata Khan. And this is the young woman whose parents own the country-style restaurant that you're talking about. Here's what Ms. Khan had to say. We barely get new customers. The only regular customers coming here by car. So, like, when that stuff happens, the whole construction thing, both of the roads are closed. So we're not going to make half of the money we made in a month for the past two months. That's going to take the whole thing. That's really devastating because it's really sad. So what do you do? I'm, I'm not sure. My dad's really stressed out. So is my mom. That's the only family income we got. Like, that's the only income that's coming in. I work here, too. So that's my income in a way. So it's, it's really sad. Like, we don't, my dad's stressed out. Like, we really don't know what to do. That is Samata Khan. You're listening to her parents own a country-style restaurant uh, on Queen Street and Kingston Road, which has now been shut down for a major overhaul. And we're speaking with Morgan Campbell, Global News reporter. Morgan, just wrap this up for me. How long is this going to last, really? Well, they say it, uh, it'll it be done at the beginning of November. Clearly, everyone here is hopeful that, you know, if they're working around the clock 24-7, that maybe it'll be earlier than the beginning of November. Um, but not to sound jaded, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess fingers crossed. Um, <laughs> these folks are pretty, they're, they're pretty concerned. Um, you know, if they could have it their way, it would be over, you know, in five hours from now. Morgan Campbell, not jaded, Global News reporter. You can see her report tonight on Global News at 5.30 and 6. Thanks, Morgan. Appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for having me. You know, spending some time driving around this weekend, even my son, who's 11, I point out to him, how many times are we sitting in traffic and then we pull up beside some cones that have blocked off a lane and there's just nothing going on? It's just, hey, you know, we're thinking of doing something here sometime. Why don't we get a couple of cones and block off a lane? Because that won't that won't impact anybody, will it? This is the Alan Carter Radio Program. When we come back, we're going to talk U.S. Open. We're going to talk a little tennis. Anyone? Tennis, anyone? And we're going to talk about bikes, cycling. Now, this is the other thing. So we're blocking off all the lanes, and then we're blocking off the lanes for the cyclists. How many people actually cycle to work? How many people actually cycle in this city? You want to know what the number is? Stay with us. We got it when we come back. I have got your Donald Trump updates. Obviously, each and every day there is some kind of Trump news. I will begin with this. Donald Trump is criticizing musician John Legend following a TV special on criminal justice reform. Trump says he hasn't gotten enough credit for signing a law instituting some reforms. In a series of tweets late Sunday and early Monday, Trump called legend boring. He also said legend's wife, model Chrissy Teigen, is quote-unquote filthy-mouthed. Legend responded by saying Trump is hungry for praise and asked Trump's wife, Melania, to step in. Now, that is not going to help anything. Also with Trump news, jury selection in the trial of a Chinese businesswoman charged with lying to a Secret Service agent and trespassing at Donald Trump's Trump Mar-a-Lago club bogged down over underwear. 
The woman told the judge Monday that she was wearing jail garb instead of civilian clothing because she had not been provided any underwear. After some discussion, she changed into a blouse and slacks. My lawyer has forgotten my briefs! In Copenhagen, a Swedish newspaper says a man has been denied a vanity plate with the letters Trump because it violates motor vehicle department rules. One of the largest newspapers in Sweden reporting that the man said he was, quote, drunk and thought it was fun to apply online for a new license plate with the U.S. president's last name. The Swedish Transportation Agency says on its website it doesn't approve letter combinations referring to politics. So no Trump in Sweden. Let's take a moment to relive this, shall we? Quiet, please. What a match. What a weekend. So exciting to watch Bianca Andrescu win the first ever Grand Slam title for a Canadian. And here's Mike Arsenault speaking earlier this morning on this radio station. And Mike, he's a uh, Global News sports reporter. And about a year and a half, two years ago, he came to a bunch of us when we were having an editorial meeting. He comes in and he goes, I got this story about this teenager from Mississauga that you guys have just got to, we got to do a story on this young woman. And we're like, tennis? We ain't no good at tennis. What are you talking about? And then he says, no, no, we got this, we got to do it. And sure enough, he does a profile on Bianca Andrescu. And at this point, none of us, and I still can, I still barely can pronounce her name. But at, at this point, nobody can pronounce her name. Nobody would ever heard of her. And he does a feature on her. And sure enough, now she wins the U.S. Open. Here's Mike a little earlier this morning on this radio station talking about what the future holds for Bianca. This will be the, the big thing for next year is, is she able to keep this going? Is she able to capitalize on her success? And with all people pulling you in different directions in 2020, no one's going to be surprised by her next year. So what can she do in 2020? She, can she build on this? If she does that, I mean, we could be looking at one of the all-time greats. And there's a big difference here between what we've seen in the past. Obviously, we've had two other Canadians get to Grand Slam finals. Eugenie Bouchard and Mila Sranich both have been there, but they obviously didn't win. They didn't even have break points. They have very few break points. And, and so there is a feeling here that, you know, Bianca, well, she's on her way to something special in terms of a long career. And so much has been made out of this. I want to play this for you and ask you what you think of it. This has been sort of touted as the most Canadian of moments. This is what Bianca says right in front of her rival as she's being congratulated during the post-match interview. I know you guys wanted Serena to win, so I'm so sorry. <laughs> Is that... Now, people say, well, I'm so sorry, that's so Canadian. But here's the thing that people don't realize, is when we say sorry, obviously we don't mean it, and sometimes we weaponize it, Right? Like, that was not a nice thing to say. Let's, I mean, this is one of the things I love about Bianca Andreescu is that she is fearless, she's gutsy, and in many ways she defies this caricature of the nice Canadian. Even though she says sorry, she don't mean it. Here's Katal Kelly in the Globe and Mail. 
This he filed before Saturday's match, and he was talking about Andrescu's aggressive Canadianness. Quote, she doesn't strike one as a polite sort, despite her unfortunate state of Canadianness. After she'd beaten Williams via retirement in the Rogers Cup final a month ago, the 19-year-old went over, bent the knee, and said, I'm sorry, are you okay? Now, the whole exchange was sold as a moment of kindness, but you could see in Williams' eyes that she did not appreciate the gesture. It's the sort of thing you do for the weak and infirm, not for someone you fear and respect. So interesting. Great weekend, and I just want this one quickly. Did you enjoy all the shots of her parents in the stands? Her mom, and this thing is making social media rounds, it's been tweeted out a bunch of times, where mom watches just as Andreska wins the first set in the biggest match of her life, and she's just got this kind of slight applause, and it's like, mm, yeah, see if you can do better. Uh, and now Bianca herself has actually retweeted this and said, this is actually hilarious. This is Bianca Andrescu's tweet. This is actually hilarious. My mom's a straight G. I'll never be that cool. My mom is a straight G. Can you for, translate that? What yes, does that mean? I got this here. I knew you'd ask, Jason Chapman, old guy. I'm not that dope. <laughs> old guy in the booth helping me. Straight G, Urban Dictionary. Straight up total gangster. Here's why I'll use it in a sentence. Steven does something really bad, really badass. Can I say badass? I can say badass. You just did. Straight up total gangster. Straight G right there. How many people actually bike around this city? Well, Ben Spur in the Toronto Star quotes this number. The percentage of Torontonians report cycling to work is growing, but it is still Just 2.7%. That is according to the 2016 census. Now, by comparison, the number in Vancouver, where there's more extensive bike lanes, is 6.1%. Ben joins me on the line. He's the transportation reporter at the Toronto Star. Hi, Ben. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So your story here is about a new study that looks at employment opportunities and cycling. And what did it find? So basically, uh, it, I found it was a pretty interesting study out of U of T um, that, that basically looked at the all. It looked at every single cycling route in Toronto on streets and on trails, and uh, assigned a stress level to every single street uh, depending on how kind of comfortable and safe a cyclist would would feel riding on on those routes. And it found that um, basically Toronto lacks uh, networks of connected, safe, and comfortable routes to get uh, riders to where they need to go. So levels of of high. Uh, a concentration of jobs, uh, and that's important not just for to get to your own job, but there are concentrations of jobs at places like shopping centers and entertainment districts and that kind of thing. So basically just found that it's hard for cyclists to have a safe and comfortable route all the way to, to these places where they need to go as part of their daily lives. And I think for drivers that are listening to you right now, say, well, wait, what, what are you talking about? I'm driving right by a bike lane right here. There's all of these, you know, reduced lanes to cars because of it. But what I found really interesting in this study was that, yeah, sure, you may have bike lanes, but it's not going to get you where you need to go as a cyclist. 
Yeah, so what it found is that in Toronto there are kind of um there are connected kind of networks of, of bike lanes um where it is does feel safe and comfortable for riders to go. But to get to to places where they need to go, uh you eventually have to get on some busy streets, say as like uh, Danforth in in the East End for instance, that doesn't have bike lanes. So um you can kind of go along for, for maybe a couple of minutes on these kind of isolated uh quiet streets, but if you're gonna try to get to some place where you need to go in the course of your daily life, you're gonna have to get on a busy street at some point and that's where um it, it gets a little more uh, uh uncomfortable and less safe and that, that prevents people from taking up biking because they have to, to end up on those streets. Ben, let's circle back to that number that you have in your story, two point seven percent. You know, you could look at that and say what can we do to get that number up to the Vancouver number at over 6%? Or you could look at the number and say, you know what, Vancouver's got a totally different climate than us, mm-hmm. and this is only 2 per- 7%. It, the, the fact of the matter is, is it's just never going to be that kind of uptake in cycling in this city. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's tough to say what the sort of natural cycling cycling level w- would be, but I think the kind of question is, um, is is it a policy goal uh, of uh, of the city, for instance, to try to get more people cycling, right? Like, what are the benefits of that? One of them is is perhaps uh, you know getting people doing something healthy and something that's helpful for the environment. But then I think more practically, you know, we're we're not widening any streets downtown anymore, right? We're not going to be able to, to build more road space and our population's growing. So if we're going to have people moving through the city, we're going to have to find perhaps other ways for them to, to do that rather than getting in a car. And so you have to sort of, if the goal is to get more people cycling, then then how do you do it? And, and one of the ways to do that is to build more infrastructure where people feel safe, that there's a lot of evidence um, that's referenced in the study that um, if you, uh, that, that people do want to cycle more, they would, they would like to cycle, but they just don't feel that there's a safe way for them to do that. So if there's that latent demand in there, um, then I think there, there are arguments for uh, building more bike lanes, for instance, to, to get people out of their cars and onto their bikes. Ben Spur is the transportation reporter at the Toronto Star, and you can read his story on this new report in the Star today. Thanks so much for being on the program, Ben. Thanks for having me. When we come back, a quick look at all of the news stories that are making headlines today, plus a fascinating new report about post-secondary and what kind of degree and from where will make you more money. You looking for the cash? You stay with the program. Welcome back to the program. A quick look around the country and around the world at some of the big stories that are developing over the course of the day. We are keeping our eye on the federal election scene. We're expecting the writ to be dropped, and you can. I saw this on Twitter today. Apparently, you can't. You're not supposed to say the writ is dropped. It's something. Else. It's the writ is placed carefully somewhere. Of course, the writ period. What that means is the official time when we're in an election, and the government kind of goes into a caretaker status. And there's a bunch of things that technical things that happen when you're in a writ period, and that's expected to happen sometime this week. We're keeping our eye on that. Are you sure, but, it's not plural. The writ are dropped. Don't. I thought you said you were going to just... Jason go. Chapman here again go. is in the booth, and he promised right before that he was just going to try not to screw up this next segment. Best but, producer never says anything. So just, Truth. if you don't mind, leave the news to the professionals. The Assembly of First Nations now outlining its election priorities as the federal campaign is about to begin. The National Chief, Perry Bellegarde, says his organization's top priority is mitigating the effects of climate change. Climate change, climate destruction is the number one issue facing all of us. 
Look at the flooding in First Nations along the Great Lakes, right here in Ottawa. Look at the fires in Brazil, and we sometimes call them the lungs of the earth. Look at the hurricanes. Look at what happened on the East Coast with Hurricane Dorian. That is the Assembly of First Nations National Chief Perry Perry Belgard speaking this morning, talking about the election priorities for the Assembly of First Nations in the upcoming federal election. And these are the sort of things where, you know, people, this is the kind of news that you get at the beginning of the campaign, and then nobody pays any attention to any of this until it's all over and go, oh, yeah, were we talking about that? No. Unfortunately, that's just sort of the way it happens. A group of U.S. states are expected to announce an investigation today into whether Google has become too big and too effective at stomping or acquiring rivals. Texas is leading the probe, and State Attorney General Ken Paxton says it will look at whether large tech companies have engaged in anti-competitive behavior that stifled competition, restricted access, and harmed consumers. It's likely to focus on areas that have drawn criticism in the past, including Google's online search and advertising services, as well as its Android smartphone operating system. It's the latest in a series of antitrust investigations in the U.S. and around the world. The Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission, and Congress are all conducting probes. And last week, Texas announced a separate investigation into Facebook. I'm Ben Thomas. Now, if you know anything about trusts, especially in the United States, I'm so reminded of the, you know, the the railways at the turn of the last century where, you know, essentially just huge swaths of land were given over to these giant trusts and essentially railway barons were born out of that. And it took, it took a concerted effort by governments to dismantle it. And I think on you know, on the tech side, we have that too. Google, Facebook, we have all of these new tech giants. And somewhere down the line is going to come a point when governments are going to say, no, we are forcibly going to take these apart. A fascinating new study out of the United States as well, but has applications here in Canada. A new study looks at the last 20 years and says that rates of suicide have risen significantly in rural areas. Between 1996 and 2016, more people in metropolitan areas died by suicide. But if you look at the numbers across the country, the suicide rate is much higher in more isolated areas. Researchers speculate the lack of social contact, low income, and reliance on government assistance may be driving it. The economic realities of farming may also play a role. Thomas Van Otten runs a hotline where those struggling can seek help. Half of our calls have been from loved ones, uh, a spouse or a, a child who is very concerned about their mother or father. Suicide rates across the country jumped 41% over the 20 years of the study. Sherry Preston, ABC News. And if it's poverty that is the issue, then perhaps an education is the best way to alleviate that. But listen to this. A Statistics Canada study has found that people with a bachelor's degree from a college earn 12% more just two years after graduation than those with a bachelor degree from a university. Researchers say college grads were more likely to choose higher-earning fields of study. To talk more about that, plus another survey about stress and cash, I'm pleased to welcome to the program Rubina Ahmed-Huck, our personal finance expert. Rubina, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. So talk about stress and money stress and what that really means to not only our bottom line in terms of our mental health, but the bottom line for business. 
Yeah, you know, every year the Canadian Payroll Association does um, a survey about salaries in Canada. And this year they talked about financial stress and how that impacts actual productivity in the Canadian workforce. And they found that financial stress, because we know Canadians are in record amounts of debt. We know that Canadians are struggling to pay their day-to-day bills. Uh, uh, they're saying that it's costing the economy $16 billion annually because people get stressed. They take time off work. They're not as productive at work. They may not have as many good ideas because their minds are more thinking about how they're going to pay their debts at the end of the day. And at, at the end of the day, when it comes to productivity, that is a big, big deal for companies. It is. I mean, they're saying that, you know, 83% of Canadian workers, so basically the majority of us, are worried about the rising cost of living and how inflation is going to impact, you know, how much things are going to cost, like groceries and gas and transportation, you know, things that we need to run our everyday life. This is not oh, can I afford to go on a vacation and can I afford to go out for dinner this weekend? This is, can I afford to do the major things in life that I need to do to just run my household? Um, and so, and debt um, for that reason um, is starting to creep up for a lot of people. And it's starting, you know, especially when you think about could interest rates rise? I know the Bank of Canada held rates steady this week, uh, but the economy is doing well. Um, uh, more people are working. That just gives them more uh, data to say that, you know, we should keep interest rates where they are. Um, we are looking at possibly a rate cut, but if for any reason rates were to rise, many of those people hanging on to a lot of debt who are already feeling stressed and costing the economy billions uh, could start to feel even more stressed out. So then the the secret is is just to make more cash. And one of the ways to do that, of course, is to up your education. And then you look at this study that says, well, wait a second, maybe that bachelor's degree from that highfalutin university isn't the way to go. Yeah, I mean, this is really interesting. Statistics Canada recently came out with a report that finds that two years after graduation, those people with a bachelor's degree, which I think requires a little bit of explanation, which we'll do, a bachelor's degree from college actually did better than those with a bachelor's degree from university. Now, from college, most people think, don't you get a diploma at college? You can get bachelor's degrees in things like automation and robotics, sciences, um, supply chain management. So college gives young people actual practical skills in specific types of fields where they can go out and they can apply that in those fields and they can get those jobs that pay the big bucks because they have those high skills that you know we're always talking about there's a shortage of highly skilled workers in canada so a way to get those skills is to get these degrees from college where they're already set up to give you specific types of skills rather than you know a more holistic approach to education a more umbrella approach of let's teach you everything and then you figure out what you want to do when you go to graduate school or even beyond they give you specific skills and that's actually paying off uh, because the data from StatsCan shows that wait so you're you're saying that that humanities degree with a minor in french poetry is not going to be as marketable as some kind of you know stem technology something like that from a college Exactly. I mean, I don't think that there is any harm in getting any kind of higher education. I would never tell somebody that you shouldn't pursue this because if that's what they're passionate about, if you're good at something, you're going to make money doing it. 
But if you want to, you know, specifically look at fields where there is a shortage, so in those STEM fields like science, technology, engineering, and math, where we constantly talk about on this program about how companies are hungry for workers with those types of skills and are going outside of our borders to find people to actually fill those positions. So if you're a young person listening, find the jobs of the future that are most in demand. And then maybe a college degree, which is also going to cost you less than a university degree and take less time, uh, can get you job ready and you can actually be making the big bucks. I mean, Stats Can is showing that, uh, you know, uh, college student graduates of bachelor degrees are actually making 12% more two years after they graduate. So that those numbers are pretty significant. I mean, that can mean an extra tens of thousands of dollars in your pocket. Rubina Ahmed-Huck, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Alan. All right, stay with us when we come back after the break. Big premiere at uh, TIFF tonight, The Joker. We're going to preview that. Plus $600,000 for a dilapidated garage? Welcome back to the program. If there's anything the people of this city like to talk about, two things basically in this order. They like to talk about the weather, and then they like to talk about real estate. And sometimes you just get the weather right out of the way. Nice day. Did you see what the house down the street sold for? They just go right to it. So you may have seen this news that a Toronto garage in the Danforth area is on sale now for $600,000. bucks for a dilapidated Basically, knock it down garage. It's a 20-foot by 100-foot lot. Here's Dave Woodard with more on it. The garage itself is no find. It's the land that everyone's clamoring over. It sits on a 20-foot by 1,000-foot lot that could easily be built on. And as some realtors are saying, it could be a great step up from a condo building. The lot could be used to build a two-story house that's anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 square feet. The cost may not be so bad either. Considering last month, the Toronto Real Estate Board said the average price for a detached home in the city is about $1.2 million. Dave Woodard, Global News Radio. That is Dave Woodard talking about this $600,000 garage. Joining me on the line is the real estate broker trying to sell this. Nima Kadem is on the line. Hi, Nima. She'll be with us shortly, but while we get her on the line... Jason Chapman. Alan, can I just tell you that's a producer fail? For two. Nima's uh, working with me now. I put in a bully offer to get that. Uh Uh, Yeah, bully offer. Wow, Chapman. I can tell you that year over year, the number of active listings in the city of Toronto is actually down by 11%, while the prices are going up by over 5% a year. So if you do that kind of math, you understand why it is that someone would pay $600,000 for a garage. Why? Because they're going to knock it down and they're going to build a house on it. What's happened is, is that the owner, the previous owner, actually severed the two lots. So Nima's on the line with us. Hi, Nima. Hi, Alan. How are you? So how's it going with the selling of the garage? So far, so good. So we're actually having the offer presentation at the office um, tomorrow, September 10th at 1 p.m. So we'll see how many people show up. Is there an open house? Can I come by? Will there be fresh baked cookies? <laughs> You're welcome to come anytime. We've got the garage. We'll open it up. And what will I see inside the garage? Uh, it's empty. There's nothing inside the garage. Essentially, what you're buying is the land. And... 
In terms of permits, everything, everything, everything on the up and up here. I could just buy this garage, knock it down, and I come in there and build myself my own Taj Mahal. Well, you gotta go apply for the permits, depending on what you're looking for. But you're saying that it's all there, all tickety boo. It can be built. If they build it, they will come. Well, you have to go get the drawings done. You gotta submit it to the city. You gotta go through the process, and depending on the size, you could get the permit, or you would have to go to the Committee of Adjustment and uh, go through that process as well. How did you get, come up with 600 k for this? So just so that we're clear, uh, the listing is listed by a colleague of mine, and we work in the same brokerage, but the listing price is essentially just for the land price. So at 599 over there, if someone was to buy it, they would probably have to incur about $600,000 worth of construction to put up a two-story property. And right now, in that area, if someone was to buy this at 600000 they would be well ahead of buying something brand new. It's fascinating. Fascinating development in the city. Nima, thank you so much for being on the line. Thank you. appreciate it. So if you got a spare half mil kicking around... You know, you get yourself a sweet, sweet garage. Here's something else that's happening tonight in the city. Big premiere at TIFF. The Joker is about to open. Set outside DC's expanded universe slate of films, the origin tale reimagines how Batman's most famous nemesis came to be. It's a standalone movie. It's meant to be an exploration of a man disregarded by society. And, of course, it stars Joaquin Phoenix and he will be on the red carpet tonight. Our very own Chris Jenselowitz is with me in the studio to talk about what's expected to happen tonight. Hi. Yeah, it's a big night at TIFF. So this film just cleaned up in Venice as well. Yeah, it won the Gold Lion, the biggest award, the Golden Lion, forgive me, um, the biggest award there at the actual festival. And uh, Joaquin Phoenix has been receiving just stellar reviews uh, from top to bottom. I've not seen, actually, I don't think I've seen one negative thing about him yet. This is directed by Todd Phillips, and so far the reviews, as you say, have been pretty glowing. How disturbing of a movie do we think this is? I think more what it is is it's raw. I think that what we're going to get is a Joaquin Phoenix uh, performance that uh, sticks with you. One review I read, actually, I didn't want to read too many because I don't want to get spoiled. I want it, When I go see it, I want it to be semi-fresh um but the quote was this movie redefines the joker as a character as we know it and he says it's impossible to shake off after you see it the guardian newspaper calls the joker quote gloriously daring total film said it was challenging and subversive in terms of joaquin phoenix lead performance it's been variously described as fearsome astonishing and mesmerizing. What does it mean that it is coming to TIFF? Obviously, it's not debuting here because it was in Venice. Yeah, so it's getting the, I guess, the North American premiere is tonight. Um, and then it premieres wide for all of us plebes on uh, <laughs> October 4th. I I'm should not, say, actually, just you. I'm not a plebe. No, you, you, are you, are you, do you get to go to the premiere? I can probably see it in advance, yeah. Not today, but they're Not also today. airing it again later this week, so I'll probably be able to sneak in there. What's your experience been down there in the festival so far, Chris? You know what? Um, I was down there all weekend um, from sunrise to sunset, so I'm exhausted. But uh, it's a very uh, 
I don't know, it feels very, very jovial this year. There's some sort of a camaraderie this year. The Festival Street might be helping with that. It just felt very crowded, very, everyone's smiling, there's a lot of people eating ice cream, you know, things like that. Um, it's not even necessarily just about the movies anymore. I think it's uh, actually become sort of more of an experience. An experience downtown. Yeah. It's, yeah. As, as I like to say uh, in our family, it, it wasn't a good movie, it was a good movie experience. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> but it, when when Farah Nasser, my co-anchor, was down there for the opening on Thursday, and she just talked about it, it, not only, you know, the vibe and the energy, but the traffic is insane. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't drive. It's just a fool's but, errand at this point. But getting in and out of there just did, by transit, well, that was okay for you? You know what? It actually wasn't. Uh, I don't want to bash TTC, but I don't know. I think they know what they're doing there with King going east. It's, it's impossible to leave once you get there i mean you have to kind of find your way out and it's it's kind of a mystery this is this is what i'm hearing and i, I don't think we're, we're it's not being reported well enough because there's this sort of thing this boosterism that we get in the city it's like tiff it's fantastic we love tiff it oh stars and then you're like well you can't get around the city it's madness well what's insane is it's all you know localized in this one core area where everybody has to get through and you see people going to work in the morning and they just look like they want to kill everyone because it's just like, it's just jam-packed. You have to like elbow your way through. People are meandering, looking at kiosks and stuff. That's for free, there's free food samples everywhere. Right. So everyone's blocking everyone else. Uh, there's no streetcars running through there. So it's a huge impediment. I'm just going to guess if the Joker was involved. Here's Joaquin, by the way. Here's a clip from the movie. If he was involved. People would move out of the way. I think. My life was a tragedy. Yeah, you, all right, let's bring that down, because you know what? I, I, as far as I'm concerned, you're never going to best. You're never going to best. You don't mess with another man's rhubarb. Am I right or am I right? Jack Nicholson is the Joker. End of story. <laughs> it's hard to argue that. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Chris Janselowitz is a national online supervisor and a man who is actually bleeding from the eyes right now Correct. because you've watched too many movies and you've just been tiffing it up. That's a perfect description. Yeah. All right. Thank you. I appreciate you being on the program. Thank you so much. I've got Anytime. a couple of pot stories just to finish off the program for you. A man in Ohio who was confused about Ohio's drug laws called the police department demanding that officers return the small amount of marijuana that they stole from him. A TV station reporting that a dispatcher on Tuesday received an expletive-laced call by a man who said, Hey, you took too much of my weed. And now cops have had to go on Facebook and say, You know, Ohio cities do have decriminalized pot possession, but it is still illegal. Who can keep track? Turns out it's illegal. An Alabama high school has decided to remove some of the doors from the bathroom stalls in an effort to stop students from vaping in campus bathrooms. So now, not only is the bathroom not gender-specific... There are no doors, and you can't get high. And finally, in Florida, authorities say nine students from a Florida charter school ate marijuana-infused candy and were hospitalized with stomach pains. These kids were 10 and 11 years old. A statement from a school spokesperson says... A student inadvertently brought in THC-laced candy in a package similar to a popular sour candy and then shared it with all of his friends. 
<laughs> what if you're that kid? I uh, the next day when everybody comes back from the hospital, are you a hero or a zero? Hero. Hero for all time. Join me tonight. Speaking of heroes for all time, join me tonight. Global News, 5.30, simulcast on this radio station at 6 p.m. Talking about Farah or you, the hero? There's one hero and one zero on that anchor desk, and you choose. I'll see you again tomorrow at noon.